Hello, Health Investor. Welcome to another episode of the Health Investment Podcast. Today, you're going to hear from Dr. Mike Albert. Dr. Albert is a co-founder and the chief medical officer of Accomplish Health, a virtual obesity medicine practice. He is board certified in internal medicine and a diplomat of the American Board of Obesity Medicine. Before joining Accomplish Health, he served a joint faculty appointment at Cedars-Sinai and UCLA. In addition, Dr. Albert founded the Medical Weight Loss Program at Cedars-Sinai under the Weight Loss Center. In his spare time, Dr. Albert co-hosts the Impossible Healthcare podcast and is an active social media user, including TikTok, where he educates his over 220,000 followers on obesity and health. In the episode, Dr. Albert shares why the prevalence of obesity continues to rise, how food processing affects satiety, weight loss approaches that are a waste of your time, money, and energy, and more. Before we get to the episode, I want to share one of my favorite resources with you, ThriveMarket.com. I don't know about you, but I used to think that eating healthy meant I had to spend a lot of time and money at the grocery store. That is, until I discovered Thrive Market. Thrive is an online grocery shopping platform that's essentially a mix of Costco, Whole Foods, and Amazon. Since Thrive delivers groceries directly to your door, they're able to cut out all middle people and heavily discount their inventory. When I buy groceries on Thrive versus going to my local supermarket, I save at least $20 per order, and I'm able to fill up my cart from the comfort of my couch. To read my full Thrive Market review, steal my shopping list of over 150 items, and save additional money on your first order, visit thehealthinvestment.com slash thrivemarket, or just click through the link in the show notes. All right, it's time to hear from Dr. Albert. Enjoy! I'm Brooke Simonson certified nutrition coach and your host of the health investment podcast. If you're ready to look and feel your best without any confusion, frustration, or stress, you're in the right place. Each week I interview experts and share no nonsense research backed tips so that you can finally lose weight for good, eat healthy long-term, have the high energy you crave, and feel like a million bucks. I'm so happy you're here with me today. Don't forget to hit subscribe so that you never miss an episode. Hi, Dr. Albert. Thank you so much for joining me today on the Health Investment Podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me, Brooke. I think you were my first person I followed on Twitter. (laughs) How is that possible? I don't really use Twitter. And I mean, I still kind of use it sparingly. It's not one of my top social media platforms, but yeah, I don't know. But I remember you specifically as being the first person I followed. And then I've since then followed a bunch more, but I have been following you for a while and love all of your posts. And I'm just so excited to talk to you today. Well, I I am definitely honored and, and thanks again for having me. Yeah. I would love if you could start by sharing with my audience what led you to go into the field of obesity medicine. Yeah, I think for me, it was a, a realization I came to during my medical training. So I am an internal medicine um, physician by training, and 
I deal as a primary care physician. I dealt with a lot of chronic disease. Um, I think like any primary care physician in today's day and age, you deal with a lot of issues that are weight related. And I'm sure we'll get into that a little bit later. But when I was looking at many of the issues my patients were suffering from, I, I got exceedingly frustrated by the way our systems were set up to address them and felt like a lot of the reaction and the care that we provided was really just addressing symptoms of some underlying core or fundamental health issues. One of those issues being um, the weight-related health issues or obesity. And for me, it was sort of this realization that in looking further upstream, that there was a tremendous opportunity to really improve the lives of people. And for the patients that I was able to work with and, and really help them manage their weight issues, that I had tremendous success. So some of it was um, just through personal experience at being a clinician during my training. Um, eventually, that led me to find sort of the uh, American Board of Obesity Medicine, where I got additional additional specialized training, um, and I just sort of fell in love with the field um, and all the good work that I could do in helping people to overcome many of the health epidemics of our time um, that were weight related and. Uh, from there, you know, uh, I think the rest is history for me. I, I'm now uh, a co-founder and uh, the chief medical officer for a virtual obesity medicine practice. And uh, we're currently sort of expanding nationwide to hopefully increase access to this really vital care need. And uh, yeah, looking forward to talking to you more about it. Awesome. How many states are you currently in? Right now, so we're, we're pretty hyper-focused in certain markets. We're in about 13 states. Um, with We're going to expand a little bit later. But um, yeah, I mean, I think for us, it's really critical to increase access to a lot of what the latest science indicates are best practices for managing the disease of obesity and what that entails. It's much more than any one intervention. There's levels of personalization, um, iterative management comprehensive, multidisciplinary care coordination. So there's a lot to it. And I think that historically, healthcare has done a very poor job of integrating these various facets to support people who struggle with their weight. Hmm. You mentioned the disease of obesity in the way that you say it. So what is the definition of that in a clinical sense? Or do you have a personal definition? What are, what are you even talking about when you say obesity? Yeah. So I think there's two aspects, right? Because I think there's uh, some people would give pushback or would refute the statement that uh, obesity is not a disease. Maybe it's a consequence of some lifestyle or, you know, it's a lack of uh, uh, moral fiber, despite none of that being true. I think we have to look at it under two lens. So there's what is a disease in general? That is a change in sort of health state that leads to more morbidity right, leads to other diseases or is a risk factor for other diseases, um, impairs health function, and potentially um, increases mortality. And, and really, obesity hits all three of those. So from the basic clinical definition, these are sort of agreed upon by various um, medical organizations across the world, including World Health Organization. Obesity is a disease because it really checks all of those sort of tenets of a disease from a clinical standpoint, so obesity is the excess accumulation and actually the dysfunction of adipose tissue in one's body. 
that leads to mechanical complications, like the weight-related f- effects on the joints, leads to cardiometabolic consequences, increase in heart disease, fatty liver disease, diabetes, and also the psychological consequences. So we know obesity can be causative and has very close relationship with a lot of other mental health issues. So those are how we typically view and sort of define obesity is it is the the way in which the fat accumulation in our body and the dysfunction of that fat tissue impacts our health across a range of, of sort of considerations. Hmm. Should everyone with obesity try to lose weight or as the popular HAES or healthy at every size community suggests, can you be healthy with obesity? Yeah, I, I mean, I think this is, a, this is a, a topic that brings a lot of very sort of spirited discussion. Um, I think if you look dispassionately at the data that having excess weight will lead to increased morbidity throughout one's lifetime. There have been a number of studies that have validated that. And certainly at certain levels, that would also potentially shorten your lifespan. So I think that question really needs to be determined by an individual. But if I'm being dispassionate in sort of reviewing what the science suggests from a clinical standpoint, there is definitely increased risk of morbidity without a doubt, and in many cases also mortality in living at an elevated weight state or at an unhealthy weight. And in that regard, for the people who are interested, we should definitely give them access to tools that can help them deal with that. Mm -hmm. So it's a conversation you would have with your physician in terms of, is your weight putting you at risk for these different diseases later in life or even currently. And it's not a one size fits all type of thing in a way. Yeah, I think that's right. I think all of health, you know, really comes down to that discussion between you and your care providers. What, what makes sense for you? What elements should be considered? Are you at higher or lower risk for particular things that you would care about? What allows you to live a life that you find true meaning And part of that consideration may include improving your weight and managing your weight better than what you're currently doing. So I 100% agree that it is a very individual choice that should be respected and never forced upon anyone. But we need to have honest and scientific-based conversations about people's risk and about what we know to be true related to their health state they're currently experiencing. So I think one place where there's a lot of question and some of the conversation sort of uh, drifts into is, is there such a thing as metabolically healthy obesity? And I would say based on our current understanding of the concept that most people who have no identifiable pathology outside of being heavier um, typically reside in a transitional state wherein if given enough time, they will be at higher risk of incident disease like diabetes and cardiovascular disease, they will likely inevitably develop other complications related to the weight if no other reason, you know, if only just sort of biomechanical like joint pain, back chronic pain issues, osteoarthritis and the like. And, And so I think the evidence to date does not suggest that metabolically healthy obesity exists. One of my friends, um, 
recently did a study looking at uh, one of the definitions of metabolically healthy obesity in the research, and they did some very in-depth studies that could only be done in a clinical trial setting. And they looked at the majority of those patients had underlying metabolic health disease that would not be captured with routine clinical testing. In particular, a lot of them had what's called hyperinsulinemic hyperinsulinemia or excess insulin production outside the normal range and insulin resistance. Now, they didn't have elevated blood sugars or anything of that nature, but they had evidence of metabolic health impairment. So I would say, based on what we know, I don't believe that it is a true sort of state that I think that individuals are definitely at risk. And once again, what they do about that risk, how they make informed decisions based on that risk comes down to very personalized choice and hopefully a very productive conversation with their care team. Well, and I think that's such an important term to say is a productive conversation. Sometimes I see in these communities, it just turns into, I don't know, a firing match of, you know, a back and forth. And what you're saying is never that somebody shouldn't be respected at a heavier weight or that body positivity is wrong. I think a lot of these ideas get conflated. And so if somebody says it may be optimal for your health to lose weight, then somebody may take that message as you're body shaming me or do you come against that ever in your messaging? Yeah, I think that I think that they're right is a lot of conflation as you eloquently described. Um, listen, body positivity, self-worth, who you are as a person and what you have to offer this world is completely unique and independent of your health state. And we need to be very clear about that. There's too much mixing of these concepts. If you struggle with high blood pressure, I would never judge that. I would never use that to judge you as a person. Why would we do it for obesity? I think because obesity typically has a visual component that people associate with the disease being the weight, there's a physical manifestation an element of that. I think there is a superficial um, view and in people's interpretation of it. And they typically, um, once again, make it out to be based on ignorance, you know, laziness, um, lack of discipline, etc. Let us be very clear, that is not the cause of obesity. Obesity does not define who people are, and what they have to give this world. And so I think we have to be very careful, you're right, Brooke, and not conflating both who people are, their value, their confidence, et cetera, to that of their health. Those are different conversations and they should be had in different forms. Mm. Why does the incidence of obesity continue to rise and why had it not been a problem many years ago for humans? Yeah. I, so I think what you're describing is why have we seen a, a pretty significant increase in the number of people struggling with their weight? So if you look at the data by 2030, it's expected that, uh, to be about uh, um, 80% of the U.S. adults will have a weight problem and 50% will have obesity. So wow. one in two U.S. adults will have obesity by 2030 if we don't change the trajectory. That's pretty, I mean, that's pretty remarkable when you think about that. I mean, that's yeah. a majority of the U.S. adult population struggling with their weight, if not having significant weight and health issues related to that. And I think if you look at the best data we have, it's really a combination of uh, environmental factors, predominantly the food system that we now have and continue to support, that has led to um, the ease of which we have gained weight. And so I think 
one thing in particular that has come out in in uh, a lot of the recent research is the level of processing of food that has depleted the nutrition of the food that we eat while simultaneously increasing the energy content of the food. So being very highly energy dense, being hyper palatable in the way that it's manufactured, being aggressively marketed to us, delivered to, right to our front door at all hours of the night and day, super convenient, right? Um, that does not mix well with our evolutionary biology in the way that we manage our weights. We know that much of our evolutionary biology was predicated on preventing against weight loss as a means to promote survival. It really wasn't aggressively um, developed to prevent against weight gain. And so there is this sort of natural asymmetry in the way in which our bodies regulate weight. We can acutely adapt to changes in energy intake, like excessive eating over the holidays, but sometimes with enough sort of um, with enough excess over time that our bodies cannot account for that. And that is part of the genesis of um, weight gain, the disease of obesity, et cetera, is that those systems get overwhelmed by a lot of these environmental factors, not the least of which is the current food system. Mm. When you say processed food, I think a lot of people jump to things in a bag or a box. But I saw, I found you on TikTok also. I think algorithms are scary or just, you know, how your phone listens to you all the time. But yeah. somehow it knew you were coming on here. And so, or I followed you on Twitter or whatever, and then started showing me your TikTok videos. Oh my gosh. Um, I know. So it's kind of weird because <laughs> I'd never seen, it never popped up in my for you page or whatever they call it before. Um, so maybe it read through my calendar. I don't know what happened, but then I was excited to find you on there and started watching some of your videos. And you were even talking about food processing in terms of a potato where you turn it in from just its regular potato. Let's say you were to eat it in baked form versus making mashed potatoes. Can you explain how that processing even can affect satiety? Yeah, I, I think so. When you're looking at food and, and the way that it can sort of play a factor in how much you eat and um, ultimately help you to regulate your weight, one of the keys that we know is the level of processing of that given food um, may influence how much you eat. And um, Kevin Hall's group out of the NIH has have done some elegant studies looking at this. And what they showed is basically very comparable diets for macronutrients and all sorts of other nutrient uh, characteristics. But having one diet be a higher level of processing versus the other, well, the higher processed diet lead it, led to greater um, food consumption. And, and this was in a setting where people weren't instructed how much to eat. It just spontaneously led them to eat more, about 500 calories more per day. Wow. which led actually to weight gain over the course of the two-week study. It was a short-term study, but they still um, gained weight. And I think the point is this. Um, we have pretty clear data that if you take food in its sort of normal architecture, right, the original packaging it comes in, we call it the food matrix, and you distort that. And if not only do you distort it, but then you inject chemicals into it to make it taste better, to make it preserve longer. There's clearly things that are happening to the food that our biology doesn't really process appropriately. What composition of, you know, what, what different factors and what exact combination of these factors cause us to not recognize the food as well and to not be as full and satisfied? We still don't know. That's still being looked at. One of the, the leading thoughts is the level of energy density of the food. 
um, mm. uh, has been associated with more or less energy intake. So low energy dense foods, foods that you can eat a lot volume wise at a very low calorie cost. A lot of these are, you know, plant-based have high water contents, um, even a lot of unprocessed meats as well. Those, those typically are eaten in much smaller amounts than if you were to eat the comparable processed food. So I think the point here is when you start to distort food and you start to manipulate it and put it through levels of processing, in particular, um, if you enhance it in a number of ways, adding fat, adding sugar, adding salt to it, it, it alters the food in a way that we don't um, get as full and as satisfied. And so in order to satisfy those evolutionary urges to be full and to be satiated, we continue to eat. And I think part of the problem with the modern food environment, we eat so much, so many of our calories come from these processed sources, greater than 50% based on some of the recent observational data, that we're really struggling to manage our weights because we are overeating consistently. And we're even seeing that in pediatric populations where um, in some groups, they're they're eating about 75% of their calories from these ultra processed foods. It's a real problem. And it's not a simple problem. It's not just like, you know, turn, flip a switch and we stop. There's an entire ecosystem that supports these type of foods, whether it's the um, federal policies, whether it's the marketing structures, whether it's the businesses themselves who rely upon the, the revenue from these sales. You know, there are layers to this that make it quite complex. And, uh, you know, we need to be very thoughtful in how we do this, but it's very clear that the food environment is playing a significant role. And within that, the sort of the processing of the food itself. That's so interesting about the level of processing. I've never heard it described exactly that way, but it's making me think if I were to boil a potato and chop it up and just eat the plain potato without any butter or salt or pepper or any seasonings on it, it'd be pretty hard to continue to eat that to an overeating point versus if I were to make mashed potatoes and put in a bunch of salt and pepper and butter. Exactly. I could definitely overeat those and then open a bag of potato chips and I could eat that no problem in probably five minutes. Um, but I think that's a cool way to describe it. And even for listeners to think of the different foods they're eating on that continuum of processing, if they are struggling um, to feel full. Yeah. I heard Dr. Robert Lustig um, one time describe it in this way, which would be easier eating five oranges worth of orange juice and, you know, drinking mm. it or eating five oranges, five yeah. oranges worth of orange juice, about 16, 20 ounces. You can probably do that in a short amount of time. Eating five oranges would be a very tall task. It'd be hard for almost anyone to do in one sitting. So yeah. it's important to understand how the packaging, the food comes in, plays a role in, in, in sort of our digestion and uh, the ability to, to, to handle the food that we eat. Yeah. Even last night, um, my husband was still hungry after dinner. And I said, why'd you have an apple? I just got some apples. So he was eating it. And I looked over five minutes later and he's still eating the apple. And I said, wow, you're taking a long time to eat that. He's like, man, this is really filling. It's hard right. to get this down. Maybe I'm not as hungry as I thought. But, you know, if you were to open up something that's processed right from a bag and be eating that after dinner, you could probably eat two, three times the amount of calories in the apple. Oh, easy. easy. In a much shorter amount of time, for sure. Right. Right. What would you say when you see people 
using their best efforts, they have the best intentions, and they're trying to lose weight. What do you see them doing that's a waste of their time, money, and energy? Mm, that's a good question. Where, you know, what are some things that people could do differently that would uh, right away probably make a meaningful difference? So I think one of our legacy issues within this space that has been plagued by uh, many issues, um, sort of within the weight loss, the, the larger weight loss space is um, people relying upon unsustainable patterns of behavior to achieve some outcome. Um, I cannot emphasize this enough, and I talk every day with my patients about it. If what you're doing, if the behavior you're adopting, whether it's a type of a dietary pattern, a way of exercising, whatever it is that's helping you to achieve a certain health state, if what you're doing is not sustainable, if you can't do it a month from now, six months from now, two years from now, then it's not going to be meaningful for you. It's not going to lead to meaningful health change. Anything you do that helps you achieve a particular health state, be it a medication, be it a surgery, has to be maintained for you to maintain that health state long-term. So mm -hmm. that's a critically important factor. So when people are evaluating, is this approach going to be helpful for me? Should I join this commercial program where they send me meal plans and you know, you know, prepared food? If I'm not going to do that the rest of my life, it's not going to lead to long-term change. And really health is defined by the consistency of health behaviors long-term. In many ways. So I think that's a critical element that you always have to look at sort of the longevity to any approach before you sort of jump headfirst into it. Right. Kind of what's the exit strategy? Is there, what are you going to do when the thing, whether it's the meal plan or the meal replacement shakes, when that thing ends, what are you going to do after that? Yeah. And I, listen, I tell people, uh, I have people that are skeptical. I don't know that I can have a uh, a pre-made meal for the rest of my life. I, I may want to like cook my own food or I don't know that I could have a protein shake as a meal replacement for the rest of my life. And so if it's helping to enhance your life in a meaningful way and it's not a burden to you, if anything, it makes it more convenient to eat a particular way, why wouldn't you do it the rest of your life? From, right. from that standpoint, it's a net benefit to you. So I would argue it might be a really good reason why you should continue it. So l listen, I think sustainability is in the eye of the beholder. That has been made true to me time and time again. I have patients that do the most, in my eyes, the most restrictive things in their lives, but they, it works for them. And I support mm -hmm. them in those efforts because it works for them. And because we found something that works for them, I'm not here to judge them. As long as we sort of come from a science-based approach, if what they do is, is, is valid in their eyes and is sustainable, more power to them. So I think that's once again, Brooke, I think that's just a critically important point that I hope people take away. On In that same vein, so there's some popular dietary patterns that people may choose to follow for different purposes, oftentimes weight loss. I'd love to know your thoughts in terms of these popular dietary patterns and what they get right, if anything, and what they get wrong. So starting with keto, what does keto get right, if anything, and what does it get wrong? Yeah, I think keto really helps people in a very structured way to get away from the sort of standard American diet trash that we put into our bodies. So, you know, because it's cutting out carbohydrates, a lot of people are consuming highly refined grains on a daily basis that are problematic for their health and their weight management. And because keto makes it very simple, you're just cutting those things out, right? No carbs, basically less than 50 to, or 20 grams of carbs a day. 
for many people makes it simple, right? It's, it's sort of like intermittent fasting. I'm not going to eat. Um, I'm not going to eat at a particular time. And so, you know, I can just, I can just do it. I know what I'm going to do. And so I think making it simple, removing maybe some low hanging fruit, so to speak, uh, that is causing a lot of issues from a dietary standpoint, causing overeating, leading to uh, hunger later because you're not satisfied, et cetera. I think keto does that well. And and I think you can, with any of these diets, I'm sure you're going to ask me about several other ones. There's a right way to do them and a wrong way. Um, mm-hmm. Oftentimes I see on the internet, people describe them in ways that I don't think are very healthy formulations. So I, I think it's it's important too to understand there's a way to construct the any pretty much any dietary pattern that can be evidence-based and can be backed by really um, solid grounds in terms of the nutrient density of the, the dietary approach. Mm-hmm. And so then in terms of what it gets wrong, what would you say? It can simplify things for sure and maybe help you avoid a lot of the refined carbs or soda or different things you were eating in the past. But what yeah. do you hate keto? Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, I don't know that there's in, anything inherently bad. Certainly what people have to watch out for, if, if you're not going to eat carbs, then what are you going to eat? Right. Or what are you replacing it with? Cause that's a big thing in nutrition is okay. So, so what's the substitution food? If, if you're substituting it for a lot of processed meats that have a lot of processed fats or have a lot of saturated fat, you have to be careful about the implication that has on your cardiovascular disease risk. And so, what we see a lot now is people are eating what we call these very dirty keto formulations where they're eating a lot of butter, a lot of cream, a lot of fatty meats, um, and that is having negative consequences on their cardiovascular risk. And so there are ways, once again, to, to eat keto that would not involve increasing your cardiovascular risk profile. You can eat it with a more with a higher fiber approach so that your net carbohydrate consumption is still low, which, which doesn't overemphasize saturated fats from, from pretty, uh, from animal based sources. There are ways to formulate. I have really good friends like Ethan Wise, um, who promote sort of more of a plant-based low carb approach. So I I think, you know, it, it just depends. Um, you know, all of these things have particular trade-offs and if you're unclear, if you're doing it correctly, that's where experts are helpful. So we're working and talking with a dietitian or someone like myself who might be able to guide you in formulating it in a way that will better care for sort of all of these health considerations. Hmm. What about vegetarian or vegan diets? What do they get right? And what do they, what trade-offs or what pitfalls would you say are involved with those? Yeah, I see. So, you know, really plant forward or plant plant-based diets, what they do really well is, is get a lot of fiber in generally, and they're pretty volumetric. Uh, so, you know, they're mostly emphasizing low energy dense foods, which we know based on some of our prior conversations, um, you know, really promote better satiety, better weight management. Um, so they can be great for weight management. They can be good from a cardiovascular standpoint, because generally they're lower in saturated fats, um, usually higher in sort of more favorable fats, um, like uh, mono and polyunsaturated, where they sort of run the risk is, you know, like all of these things, if you're eating a very processed plant-based, you know, approach where you're, you know, highly refined grains, that can be very problematic for your health because you can overeat them or they can raise your cardiovascular risks or increase your blood sugar. Um, if you're doing a very whole, um, whole food approach as it relates to plants, 
you know, they can be done very safely and with great health benefits. And, and the literature is very clear about that. Plants are um, very nutritious. They come with a lot of um, things that you can't get otherwise, like a lot of nutrients, um, antioxidants, polyphenols, things like that, that can really enhance your long-term health. Um, so I, I think there are a lot of benefits to them, um, fiber included, uh, where some people struggle. And I mean, this is a similar struggle with keto because it is um, in some ways a little less diverse in terms of all the foods that it sort of uh, accounts for. Some people can run the risk of micronutrient issues like vitamin B12 and so um, or iron. So I, I think once again, it, the devil's in the details, right? So how you formulate it will have a lot, will we'll sort of determine how healthful a dietary approach will be. You can do bad keto, you can do an unhealthy version of a plant-based diet. So once again, if there's any question about how to do that the right way, I think that's where experts get involved. I always think about that meme or, I don't know, it's quote meme, whatever you want to call it, that Oreos are vegan, right? Right, so, exactly. <laughs> that, that's a problem. <laughs> there's a lot of a lot of candy and cookies and things out there that are vegan. And so, um, yeah, I do see that posted a lot, like the dirty keto or the dirty vegan, dirty in quotes, if people are listening. Right. It's kind of not the healthiest way to go about that dietary pattern. What about a Mediterranean dietary pattern? Is that what you would call kind of like the gold standard or are there issues with that as well? Yeah. I, I mean, I think as, as you, you see here, the theme is like, there's a, there's a way, there's a will and a way to, to sort of manipulate any of these in, into mm. more of an unhealthy style. So um, you always have to be careful of that. The one thing I like about Mediterranean is it sort of uh, lives on the spectrum in between a more sort of animal-based style and a more plant-forward sort of approach. And in that regard, it's a little more flexible. So I think you'll find that a lot of people can live in a space where there is more accommodation of different sort of dietary styles. And so, yes, it emphasizes fruits and vegetables, emphasizes intact grains, um, allows for a little bit of sort of red meat in the diet. But typically when we're talking about animals and we're talking about protein emphasizes sort of lean protein sources, including fish that have a lot of healthy fats. So I think the idea that, you know, it sort of exists somewhere as an in, uh, in-between and has a tremendous evidence base behind it, uh, both in reducing cardiovascular disease risk, as well as reducing incident diabetes and the like, I think really is a feather in the cap of Mediterranean. I say that once again with the, the heavy caveat that, you know, it needs to work for you. But I, I think a Mediterranean diet for many people would be a very um, reasonable dietary pattern, whether or not it's going to be the best weight loss diet is a whole different conversation, but at least from a, a general health standpoint, you know, you'd be hard pressed to find something, um, better than Mediterranean just cause it really does a lot of things well. Hmm. You often post new studies on Twitter and I'm wondering what new research currently excites you. Oh man, there's always new. So I, I think I'm usually in, um, pretty deep in two places. So nutrition science, and then also my field of sort of obesity research. Um, in, in my direct line of work, um, there are a lot of just really exciting new therapeutics that are being studied and that are going to imminently be hitting the market. These are our medications that have demonstrated really multiple levels of advancement in um, obesity understanding and, and um, treatment. Um, mm. You're basically operating 
um, from a legacy result of around the best drugs could get you anywhere from six to 10% weight loss, you know, in their own right, depending upon the person. We now have drugs that consistently get above 20% weight loss over long periods of time. Really remarkable step up. I mean, you're almost, you're more than doubling in many cases, the types of weight loss results, which, um, you see a number, a range of health benefits that go along with it, reductions in cardiovascular biomarkers, improvements in blood sugar management, improvements in, in uh, joint pain scores and function and all the like. So just remarkable advancements in obesity therapeutics. And uh, many of these are going to hit the market soon. Um, a lot of people saw the recent, uh, uh, recent announcement about terzepatide now being called Munjaro, which is a new Eli Lilly drug that's going to be um, both a type two diabetes medication as well as an obesity medication, um, hopefully later this year when it when it comes to market. But uh, yeah, so that's really exciting from the nutrition standpoint. It's just increasing our understanding about food. I think food is really the exciting um, frontier about you know because it's really another critical element to improving weight management long term and having a better understanding. Look at the looking at the data that you know clearly supports focusing on a low energy dense diet eating foods that are high in fiber, especially non-digestible uh, fiber, um, where you know there seems to be better support for um, weight management and greater fat loss than comparable diets. Um, that's exciting. It's just you know progressing our understanding of the way in which food interacts with our body and with disease and with our health. I think is it's all just an exciting time in, in, in sort of my field and fields adjacent because I think we're really getting a good understanding of how to, how to manage people and how to support their efforts. Hmm. I always love asking doctors this question. Um, in your years as an obesity medicine specialist, have you changed your mind about anything in light of new research or just after working with countless patients? Yeah, I, I'd like to think I'm fairly uh, dispassionate when I look at the evidence and, and try to remain as objective as I possibly can be, although everyone has their biases. I will say um, I was initially much more skeptical of uh, low, very low-carb approaches, like approaches that would produce um, an increase in uh, ketogenesis in the body or nutritional ketosis. I was much more skeptical of them because of legacy concerns around um, lowering carbohydrates can increase fat consumption and that can increase, you know, worsen cardiovascular profiles. And so for me, it was, I had a lot of skepticism, especially because many of the biggest proponents and advocates in sort of the low carb community were saying things that I knew were unscientific and mm -hmm. We're, we're not saying things with any scientific nuance. And so that sort of, I think, um, in my own bias, sort of fed into my skepticism even more and sort of entrenched me further. I, I think over time, as I read more and more data, particularly among people with metabolic health problems, and, and in particular type 2 diabetes, I, I became much more of a believer in the science as the science grew and, and had greater support for its use. And now we have growing body of literature that shows a whole food, very low carb ketogenic diet can be a very helpful way to improve blood sugar management and potentially even help remit type two diabetes, which is, is really outstanding because I can tell you even 20 years ago, many in the field thought that type two diabetes was a progressive condition wherein you're just trying to do your best to manage it and to slow the progression. We now know that's not the case with the advancements in science. And a lot of that comes from the food 
clinical trial data and the, and the dietary intervention studies, including studies that looked at lowering carbohydrates. So I think for me, it was really coming around to the idea that a lower carbohydrate approach, or like many would call it therapeutic carbohydrate restriction, can be an effective means to treat a whole range of diseases and improve the health of many people. Wow. That's really interesting. If you had to summarize best practices for weight loss on a billboard, what would you put up there? What would it read? Oh, man. So, you know, I I think from my standpoint, uh, critical to all of these things is you have to find a way of living. And you're going to get a little bit of a vague response here, Brooke, because it's, it's hard to answer that in a very succinct way. But you have to find a way of living that is both meaningful to you and is fulfilling, um, meaning you don't need to look other places to, to, to sort of fill the void. If you can't do that, uh, weight oftentimes can be a consequence of that sort of lack of meaning or lack of fulfillment. And that could be fulfillment in who you are as a person. That could be fulfillment in your dietary approach and your appetite. There's a lot of ways that that can be interpreted. But I think, once again, it's finding that approach that is both meaningful and fulfilling for you. And if doing so means you have to work with someone that can help you find uh, those things in your life, um, then I think do it. Because until you do that, it's going to be hard to manage your weight. And um, there are so many factors that can be barriers to your ongoing success in that domain. And and uh, really, it, it, it requires a comprehensive approach that ultimately gets back to, I think, those fundamental points, which is making sure that that you're living a really meaningful and fulfilling life in a, in a number of different ways. Hmm. One of the final questions I ask each of my guests is, in your opinion, what does it mean to make the health investment? I think the health investment is a, a very personal thing too, right? I, I know people who uh, for them, it means throwing the kitchen sink and trying to improve their health, you know, throwing the kitchen sink at a particular problem. And I think that's valid. And then I know other people who, you know, take a much more conservative approach and maybe take a longer term view and the way that they want to go about pursuing things. And, uh, you know, I, I'm not here to tell anyone what's right for them. I think ultimately each person has to determine um, what their health approach is. And, and I think, uh, the critical element that I will always go back to is we need to do things based on good science and we need to have honest conversations with each other, even if they're hard conversations. And based upon that, people need to determine for themselves what that means. And so, you know, I, that's what I try to do every day in my practice and working with patients. That's what we try to do, you know, as an organization and my, you know, within my company and, and, uh, you know, we try to provide interventions that really respect the person at the end of the day. Yeah, I love that. Where can listeners follow and find you? I already mentioned Twitter and TikTok, but <laughs> aside from those two places, where can they follow and find you? I mean, that's probably where I spend the majority of my social media time. Uh, yeah, it's at Michael Albert MD is my handle for pretty much all my social media. Um, my company's called Accomplish Health. Um, we're a virtual BC medicine practice coming to a market near you. Um, and, uh, you know, just, you know, my mission as it is the mission for, uh, this healthcare company that I'm building is really trying to increase access to these really good evidence-based, um, 
approaches for people to help them manage their weight. And, and for me, we've done a really, uh, the U S has done a really horrible job historically in providing these evidence-based approaches. We know that Mm -hmm. there's, you know, less than 2% of people, um, receive them. So it's really about narrowing that gap in in, inequity and, and really trying to provide it for many more people so that we can hopefully make some progress on what is otherwise going to be the largest public health epidemic of our time. Wow. Well, I will link your Twitter, your TikTok, and also Accomplish Health in the show notes. And I just want to thank you so much again for giving us your time today and sharing your wisdom with us. Hey, absolutely. Thank you, Brooke, so much. And I really appreciate it. Well, that's all for today. Thanks again for joining me here on the Health Investment Podcast. I'm so grateful for each and every one of my listeners. On your way out, remember to hit subscribe so that you never miss an episode. See you next week. All content in this podcast was created for general informational purposes only by a non-physician. None of the content should serve as a substitute for professional medical advice, treatment, or diagnosis. Always consult a qualified health provider with any questions regarding a medical condition and before making changes to your diet, lifestyle, and or exercise programs. Do not disregard any professional medical advice you have received or postpone seeking such advice because of something you heard on this podcast.